Ah, yes. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Detroit Opera House. I am Arthur Wyatt, Director of External Affairs with Detroit Opera. We are thrilled that you all are here. You know, this, of course, marks, this whole production marks the opening of our 52nd season. Can you imagine that? 52 years of bringing premier opera and dance to this region and beyond. You're exactly correct. And you all are a part of that history. Now, uh, tonight marks the 10th time uh, that our company has mounted a production of Madama Butterfly. Ooh, we got some, uh, yeah, no problem. Here we are. <laughs> uh, and so uh, tonight we're going to talk a bit about the history of the work. Uh, and then we have two very special guests, two uh, gentlemen who are really responsible for the reason why this production is here, and they'll give us a little more information. So operabase.com, uh, which tracks uh, worldwide performances of opera, lists Butterfly as the sixth most frequently performed opera on the world stage today, which is pretty amazing when you think about all the thousands of operas that have been written over the centuries. Now, the opera premiered in 1904 at La Scala with a libretto by uh, uh, Luigi Illica and Giuseppe Giocosa. It was based off John Luther Long's Madame Butterfly, a story that he had been told uh, to by his sister, uh, Janine Carell. Now, the play uh, the story was, I should say, dramatized by David Belasco, the American playwright. Uh, his piece called Madame Butterfly, A Tragedy of Japan. And he premiered this on Broadway back in 1900. Now, uh, just uh, later that year, that summer, he brings that play to London. And so Puccini happened to be in London at the time and caught this play. And I always find it interesting that uh, Puccini did not speak English. How he found himself at a play uh, in London, I have no idea, but thank goodness that he did because he was inspired by this story. He was actually working on at looking at uh, putting the Cyrano de Bergerac story uh, to music, uh, but he instantly dropped that uh, and he turned to Madama Butterfly. Now, it's not been out of the top 10 uh, ever since, although there was just a, sh a brief period uh, at the Metropolitan Opera between 1942 and 1945 uh, due to military hostilities between the United States and Japan. Now, although, it's, as I said, it's one of the the most frequently performed operas. Uh, it was a total flop at its premiere. Uh, there are many reasons for this. Uh, Puccini was still writing the score down to the last minute, so there wasn't enough rehearsal uh, for the singers. Uh, the second act was way too long, uh, and there wasn't even a tenor aria. Can you imagine that? No aria for the tenor. That's just not going to do. Now, I, not, I was going to say Rico Caruso, who had just made his Met debut just the year before. He wouldn't have picked up this opera without a good tenor aria. Uh, so he quickly, uh, Puccini pulls it immediately. Uh, he goes to revise it. And three months later, he re-premieres it. And he cuts the second and third act up, uh, right where the humming chorus is. We all know that. We're waiting for that. That's going to be fantastic tonight, by the way. Uh, and then he uh, he adds a tenor aria, Adio Fiorito Azil. Uh, as I said, it's re-premiered and has been a success ever since. Now, uh, Puccini won't go on, I should mention, we'll talk about this probably later today, to, to revise this opera no less than five times. So we're going to hear today which version of those five we're going to hear. Now, this production of B Butterfly is a co-production between Detroit Opera, Cincinnati Opera, Pittsburgh Opera, and Utah Opera. Now, this the theme 
for this year is Collide and Collage. And I can't think uh, of a better example of these culture clashings, you know, East meets West in this story with this American naval officer attempting to impose his cultural perspective onto this Japanese woman and her culture. Now, the all Japanese and Japanese American creative team, uh, led by stage director, director Matthew Ozawa, have reclaimed the opera's narrative through the lens of an entirely female Japanese design collective. Uh, he said of this production uh, that it seeks to release the opera's wings for all to express anew. We have come to love this Western fantasy. However, it is not the fantasy of the Japanese identity, a fact that he hopes to bring and amplify in this particular production. Now, when the opera opens, uh, we are in the United States, so you're probably not used to seeing that. We meet B.F. Pinkerton, uh, and he enters his apartment, and he dons a virtual reality headset and escapes into fantasy. Now, within moments, he joins a game which transports him to Nagasaki, where he embodies his avatar as a U.S. naval lieutenant, and he meets his fantasy, the beautiful geisha Chocho-san, of course, also known as Butterfly. Now, in this production, all of the opera's events are the invention of this modern-day gaming Pinkerton. And so I thought this is a great time to bring in the two gentlemen who are responsible for this production to give us a little more understanding and background about what we're going to see and enjoy. Uh, our first guest is a stage director, artistic director, and educator. He was raised in California and Singapore, completing his studies at the United World College of Southeast Asia and Oberlin Conservatory. He is a virtuoso of storytelling and has established himself as one of the most important voices uh, in the operatic world today. His productions have been seen at San Francisco Francisco Opera, Lyric Opera Chicago, Santa Fe, Houston Grand Opera, Cincinnati Opera, Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, the list goes on and on. He's also no stranger to Michigan. He served three years as assistant professor of music University of Michigan, the School of Music, Theater, and Dance, uh, and he is currently the Chief Artistic Administration Officer at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Our stage director, Mr. Matthew Ozawa. Here he is. And as he makes his way, uh, He'll be in conversation with the Detroit Opera's own Gary L. Wasserman, Artistic Director, Mr. Yuval Sharon. So thank you both gentlemen for being here. Where would you like us? So you can sit here. Okay. I'll, I'll sit off to the side here. <laughs> gentlemen, thank you for being here. And I'll, take, I'll hand it over to you, Yuval. Okay. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us early uh, to hear more about this production. I'm so glad to see so many people. Um, I have the great privilege to be talking to uh, my colleague and my friend, Matthew Ozawa, on this production. And you heard a little bit from Arthur about what this production entails. And hopefully by now you have uh, figured out that at Detroit Opera, you know, even a piece that you love, uh, I am hoping through everything that we bring uh, and everything you see on the stage, to ask you to think deeper about something that might seem recognizable, uh, to question it, uh, to explore something new in it. And I think Matthew's production of Butterfly does exactly that. And I'm excited to hear, uh, to hear directly from you about how you got to this particular uh, piece. But it strikes me that you have done Butterfly, um, how many times have you done it? Six times, seven times? 
Okay, switching, switching microphones. Hello, um, good afternoon, Matthew Ozawa. It's such a pleasure to be here, a deep honor. Um, one little side note is as a stage director, usually I leave after opening never to see what happens with a production of mine. And so it's gonna be fascinating returning for the closing of the show after it's sort of developed for the past couple weeks. Um, Wait, what was the question again? Sorry. <laughs> How, many How many butterflies? So I have directed three butterflies in the past, uh, I guess with this one, a fourth, and I have worked on a total of six. Um, of all those butterflies, most of them have been traditional, so to speak. I've directed um, a production at Santa Fe Opera and one at Arizona Opera, and my first foray was, I, I would say, 18 years ago when I intersected butterfly, and I think it was the first time in opera that I actually felt a little distanced by the piece. It was not an experience that I necessarily felt fully welcomed um, as a Japanese American. Um, I am Hapa, so I'm half Caucasian, half Japanese, um, fourth generation Japanese American. So my father was actually born in an internment camp during World War II um, in Heart Mountain, Wyoming. So in an interesting way, coming to um, experience Butterfly has actually been a very uh, complicated road, one that is filled with a lot of weight as I've sort of uh, maneuvered through not only the industry as the only Japanese American opera director in the country, but for a long time the only Asian American opera director in the country, um, and with a piece that actually feels so personal because of the East-West conflict that's exhibited within the scope of the work, um, but also, as Arthur was saying, a classic that is so filled with a tradition that people have really come to love. And a tradition uh, that for myself, I've been trying to unpack and explore what does yellow face mean? What does appropriation mean? How do we start to open the door for diverse audiences to experience this? I am an opera lover, which is why I work in opera. So simultaneously wanting to investigate how to create a work and explore um, the opera those that love the tradition, as well as those who have felt othered by it can step into it. Yeah, that's beautiful. So um, I, we were planning to have you do a production of Butterfly here in 2020, and it got, as everyone knows, postponed uh, till now. And in that gap, you had uh, a pretty remarkable kind of a kind of moment where you decided you didn't want to do the production that you were originally going to do. And I'm wondering if you can talk us through that, that moment of saying, no, I'm not going to do a traditional a naturalistic butterfly. Instead, I want to do something else. And I'm curious, because it was a very powerful moment for me on the other end of the, your letter uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to read about your feelings about the piece. Yeah, so I was slated to do a very traditional production with existing designs, scenic designs, costume designs. Um, everything was already planned out for me, except I knew that I could create my own staging. Um, having done that several times before, one of the things that has always maybe been difficult is most of the cast who um, I've worked with, most of them have not been Asian. So it's been working with a lot of um, Caucasians or, or other races depicting Japan and me feeling kind of uncomfortable or trying to unpack what does it mean to be Japanese? How, do, how does someone who's not Japanese step into these roles? And finding ultimately that it was the designs that actually 
kind of um, straightjacketed me because those designs said something about Japan that wasn't what I would say about it or someone who's Japanese, but was someone else's perspective, uh, Western perspective of Japan. And because of those designs, it then would just elicit certain types of, of mannerisms and behavior by the singers. Some of those mannerisms, you know, shuffling around the stage or bowing, um, they could sometimes feel like stereotypes. And so on traditional productions in the past, there's been a lot of exploration of how do you not create stereotypes on stage, and inevitably, the, you know, different elements would creep in. So here we are during the pandemic, and I realized that, that I was being offered a lot of butterflies, a lot of pearl fishers, and a lot of turandots. And I thought, well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is important to, you know, a duty, I think, as an Asian American to, like, reclaim those pieces. Simultaneously, I don't want to be boxed into only that repertory. And so it was at that moment during the pandemic when I realized, well, this is a whole new future. The world is changing. We as people are changing, society is changing, the, the, the conversations and dialogue are changing, and I realized that I could no longer put my Japanese name onto something that I didn't feel was actually um, representative of, of that part of myself and that culture. Um, and that is really a hard thing to do, to say, you know what, I know you offered this to me, I'm not doing it, for the following reasons. And amazingly enough, it was you and Evans at Cincinnati Opera who came back to me to say, okay, well, if we were to say no traditional production, what would you do? And it was at that point that I said, I would love to do a new production. I would love to explore it completely afresh and that it would be important, as Arthur had mentioned, to bring an entirely female Japanese design team to the process to hear their perspective as Japanese women, not only on the character Butterfly, but on the piece itself. And that then led to several years of exploring different containers and explorations of the text, of the music, and ultimately wanting to say to maybe challenge myself, we're gonna do every single note Puccini wrote, we're not going to change any of the text, we're actually she will commit suicide at the end. We're actually going to do it, but see it through a new lens. And that was the challenge that led to what you're going to see today. Yeah, wonderful. Um, you really did, yeah, applause. I think. That's right, that's right. <laughs> there was a, I heard somebody out there was tentatively wanting to applaud, so let's all, uh, <laughs> I'll do that. Um, you know, you really did get such an amazing trio of designers, and I'm just curious, I mean, I don't know of any other production. I've, I, there are productions where there have been Japanese directors that have um, brought brought their lens to the production, but they haven't always worked with an entirely Japanese team, and certainly not Japanese um, women uh, to tell the story of a Japanese woman like Cho Cho-san. Was there anything that came up in design meetings that the three of them said that maybe made you think about things in a different way? Was there uh, something that emerged? Um, Yes, all three of them kept saying to me, we're not butterfly. We don't see ourselves as Japanese women in butterfly. 
And that really just kind of struck me. And we kept looking at different containers because we said, well, maybe we'll set it in Nagasaki, you know, I think World War II, we had talked about that. Maybe we're gonna set it in the internment when we're, we set, put it all, all sorts of different settings. And, and over and over again, the designers, um, so Kimi Nishikawa, um, Michael Matsushima, and Yuki Nakase Link, who are the designers, um, they kept being conflicted because they were like, by telling it in a realistic fashion, it makes everyone think that we as Japanese women see ourselves in this and we still do not see ourselves in how she is viewed um, and the suicide. The suicide was a huge topic of conversation um, and there were moments where we took the suicide out, moments where we explored different sort of sorts of endings and ultimately, I think the big epiphany as we were looking at different containers was all three of them said, this is a fantasy of Japanese women. This is a fantasy of Japan. And I said, well, right, seen through a Western male lens that technically Puccini, but all the source material, um, John Luther Long, Belasco, Pierre Lotti, these are all Caucasian men who, most of whom never set foot in Japan. Um, and most of the times that we have experienced the traditional production, those teams have all been um, Caucasian teams, primarily led by Caucasian men. And they said it's a fantasy. And, it, and that was sort of the seed, the kernel of that, and then what became this huge exploration. Well, if it's a fantasy of how people f view Japan, well, then we're not actually creating realism on stage. Then we actually can create designs that are evocative of Japan. We can do staging that's evocative of the tradition, but all of it is highly um, fantastical, larger than life, beautiful, but simultaneously not real, not real Japanese. And something that we also conversed a lot about was the fact that I think Japanese in Japan actually do really love butterfly and, and Asian Americans in America really don't like butterfly. And so we had these large discussions like, well, why is that? And they, as, as Japanese women who go back and forth between Japan and America, their careers have been here in America, um, they realized, they said, well, when you're in Japan, you're the dominant race, right? That, that you can look at a piece like Butterfly and see it through that Western lens, but know that, that you as a culture, a uh, sort of isolated island nation, and, and to Arthur's point, that has historically had this huge conflict with the West, started with uh, Commodore Perry in 1854, led to the Meiji era, where I would say it was the Japanese um, wine inside of Western bottles. So J Japan feels very Western, they look very Western, but internally, um, culturally, behaviorally, they're extremely Japanese. But when you look at then the migration and immigration of, of Asians to America, the exclusion that would result through the Exclusion Act, but of course on Angel Island um, for the Chinese, and this is also when the pervasive use of, of yellow face in the 19th century um, in theatrical performances was sort of um, ignited in America, was actually to dig into the stereotypes, to present the stereotypes, because ultimately um, um, 
folks in California didn't want the Chinese or Asians to become American or to immigrate to America. So here we are, you know, with generations of Asians coming to America, and of course during World War II, as Japan had become very powerful and wanted to be seen as an equal to the West, because if we were to look at any of the paintings or the depictions of the East and the West's view towards each other during the Meiji era, you would instantly see that the Japanese viewed the Americans to be barbarians. They viewed Commodore Perry to be a barbarian, and simultaneously on the west side, there was a view of Asians being servile, submissive, fairly weak. So the Japanese said, we are gonna become a military power, we're gonna be equal to America, and then by the time you get to World War II, you know, Japan has been colonizing around Asia through their co-prosperity sphere, and we have, of course, the huge conflict between Japan and America during World War II. And for any um, Japanese American in America, um, two-thirds of whom were, were American citizens when they were um, rounded up and sent to the internment camps. So inevitably, there's a huge difference in terms of perspectives and lived experience for those who are Japanese or Japanese American living in America viewing this work versus Japanese in Japan viewing the work. And so these three women ultimately realized that the way in was to actually see it through Pinkerton's lens, to say that we're actually viewing it through um, this Western lens and ultimately, even though act one, we, we lift up this fantasy, act two and three are actually about um, starting to pull it all apart. Um, and, and the amount of accountability that, that I think we all sort of hold in how we view each other, what do those representations look like, and ultimately, what damage does can that do to a community in the negative stereotypes that can be on stage or perpetuated through the art form. Yeah, I mean, hearing you talk about that makes me think about um, a book that came out recently about the reception of Butterfly in Japan, uh, where the notion was when, it, when Butterfly was first performed in Japan, actually the, the reception was very negative. Maybe not quite the flop, as Arthur said, that like the first version of Butterfly in, um, uh, in, in Italy uh, was not accepted. There, it was, um, from what this book says, it wasn't accepted because people thought it was ridiculous, because it was such a fantasy and, they, and no one did recognize themselves uh, in the material. But as decades went by, and people could embrace it as a Western fantasy of Japan, where in Japan they are the majority, um, there's an ability to kind of appreciate it, kind of like when uh, the, the other Puccini opera that I, that I love, which is Fanchula del West, the Girl of the Golden West, which is all about, you know, Wild West cowboys, and what did Puccini know about that? You know, absolutely nothing. But we as Americans can watch it and kind of in, understand that this is not a natural picture of what of what the gold rush was like. That's not what we went. That's not what we're going to see in that. Um, however, in the case of Butterfly, it takes on a different dimension, right? Because now we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with a different culture that has been repeatedly exploited for entertainment value in this country. And so, it makes a lot of sense to hear you say that as an Asian American, the potential harm that an opera like this can do. And 
you know, I think after the pandemic and we were all thinking about how opera can be, can lift up our humanity, our joint humanity, from whatever culture you come from, that you don't feel like the opera is a place where that is uh, exploited for entertainment's purpose, but instead lift it up. Um, I think that Butterfly for a while felt like a piece we can't do anymore. So I have to say that your own perspective on it has made it clear that of course we can still do it. We just need to bring that critical perspective, not to destroy the piece, as you'll see. I think Matthew and his team have done a beautiful job of holding the kind of an ambiguous space for us to all realize that this is a fantasy. But you never let us off the hook as an audience. And I really appreciate that greatly. And I'm curious what you have discovered now, uh, having done the piece six times in a more naturalistic setting. Now doing it with a fantasy setting, what maybe surprised you about uh, the piece? Maybe what have you discovered in the piece that maybe you didn't think was there? Something that will be surprising to all of you, which actually continually surprises me, even though I've done this production, or done this version a couple of times, is we've inserted some of the Brescia material into our butterfly. So if the very first premiere in La Scala was a huge disaster, the second version was performed in Brescia. The standard version we know is actually the fifth version. So Puccini kept sort of revising the opera, expanded it to be three acts, changed different dimensions of it. And in the Brescia, we've actually inserted different um, pieces of music and text that are from the second version that most of you probably have never even heard. And in these moments where you know you may be seduced by the music because you know it, it will pull you out and make you sort of hear it totally afresh. And in these moments, we see a, a slightly more, um, a Pinkerton who really maybe may not fully be embracing the culture he's in. We see a butterfly who may be a little more skeptical in the love duet of the, the, uh, the officer who's with her for this evening of, of, of love. And then there's this really powerful scene in Act 3 between Kate Pinkerton and Butterfly. So we know in the standard version, Kate Pinkerton maybe has three lines, like nothing. But in the Brescia version, she has this extensive scene with Butterfly, and you actually see this the humanity between these two women who are communicating with each other, and they both... Right, Kate is saying to Butterfly, I am so sorry I have to take your child away from you. I recognize as a woman how, how heartbreaking this is and as for you as a mother and for Butterfly to realize that after three years of thinking Pinkerton was going to come back, he comes back, but here is this other woman, these two women whose fate is ultimately decided upon because of Pinkerton's actions. They have a lot in common. Um, and so it is in those moments of Brescia, and actually because we're saying that this is a fantasy, that I've noted the moments that make the audience usually pretty uncomfortable, but but we kind of gloss over it because the music is so pretty, um, the fact that she's 15 years old, et cetera, et cetera. In this production, in an interesting way, um, and you'll see this in the, in the design, there are these moments of very clear red or yellow lighting that 
are very sharp and they happen when we're commenting on a piece of text that comes from Pinkerton that might be something we wanna maybe question and consider. And then all the lighting will restore back to its sort of fantasy and other colors and sort of lets you to, to be lulled back into the music. Every time I experience those sort of push and pull out of, of um, the text that I really should be questioning, the more I realize um, that the, the piece is so deep and we actually oftentimes gloss over it because the music is so pretty, we just get seduced and swept away. I think that is a, uh, a recurring danger in opera where people sing so beautifully, so we assume they must be nice people, you know? Um, <laughs> But that is not the case, you know? It's, and I think that what the, the red light, and there's other devices that you use that help us just notice, wait, did I really read that right? Is that really what he's saying? Is that really what's happening? So just know that those moments are, um, I think you bring them out in a very strong way, and just know that that's an, a, a, a critical point of this particular production. Arthur, do I have a chance to say one more thing? Or? One more thing, we have one minute. Oh, because I, I want to mention one more thing really, it. really quickly. Is, is I know that usually Pinkerton's sort of booed at the end of an opera or end of performing. Yes, yes. In an interesting way and through this production, we never see him as a villain, right? Like he very much is an individual. When you see him at the beginning of the opera, he's a young man. He is in love with all things Japanese. There is nothing wrong with that. Right, he's disconnected from, from his fellow human being and his way in is through this virtual reality world. I think that Pinkerton's sort of own experience and, and is, is actually indicative to us as just human. We are fragile, we make mistakes, we, we may read different things into one another, we may box each other in when all of the intersections of who make us us are deeply rich and complicated. And so her own demise at the end of the show equally is his. And I think that that is tragic. The tragedy is actually in both of these characters and their journeys, not just one of them. All right, thank you Mr. so much. Mr. Matthew Ozawa, thank you so much for this conversation. I'll let you guys exit. So you are gonna love this production. Thank you. <laughs>